following our conversation with Edgar last week, today I'm going to interview his teammate, Adriana Bora, who works at the Future Society. We're going to talk about the role of government in the technological advancements of AI. In many countries throughout the world, politicians still have no clue about how technology works. So if it's something that bothers you as well, then stay tuned to see what's being done about it. Apart from that, if you've been following our podcast for a while, you have already discovered a lot of cases where AI is used in a creative, compassionate and collaborative manner. But the today's case is quite a special one. It is about slavery. Yes, although everybody in the world agreed that slavery is something we do not want to see in any society, it continues to be an issue of great magnitude, even in the year 2020. Will AI be the modern Abraham Lincoln? Let's see. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. I'm Pavlo Semsky. This is Data for Future. Welcome, Adriana, to our podcast. I'm very happy to have a new guest in our show from a wonderful organization, which I'm very uh, excited to talk about. Um, Adriana is uh, is a researcher, is a is an AI policy researcher at the the Future Society, and um, she has a like you have pretty similar um, background like me. So you hold master's degree in international public management and you also studied international relations and some statistics as far as I know. So I'm also from the background of international relations and uh, somehow I managed or somehow life led me to tech. So I'm really curious to <laughs> to ask you about um, your journey as well. So maybe this is a right place to start. How did you, how did you happen to be a policy researcher in AI? Well, first of all, I'd really like to say thank you for having me here today. It's always so exciting to meet um, like-minded people and also discuss um, uh, those topics that we are passionate about. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about those. Uh, and yeah, extremely interesting and happy to see more social scientists being driven towards the data science or the yeah tech tech science uh, part of uh, research as well. Um, I think for me it was just extremely uh, lucky to to be in a university that was experimenting with quantitative methods, making them compulsory for social science students. So starting with basic econometrics in a couple of years, I ended up doing machine learning and it was just um, a great um, opportunity to, to see uh, how multidisciplinary approach to research can lead to really innovative uh, projects. And um, I, um, I think... Uh, as I said, I can only be grateful to have the right education access that mm. uh, led me to, to do this. Mm. Interesting. I totally agree with this multidisciplinary approach because I think now there are many new disciplines appearing and they are so specialized, so deep, and somehow we need to see the whole picture. So I'm really, yeah. I'm really grateful that I am in this kind of situation as well because it's very interesting to see how they merge both social studies and some something more technical. 
So mm-hmm. now you're working at the Future Society. Before I start asking you questions about these organizations, can you explain what it is um, exactly? In your webpage, yeah. it's saying it's a nonprofit think tank. Um, mm-hmm. Could you say more concretely what is that that you are doing and how you're doing that? Sure. Um, so indeed, at the Future Society, we so we are not for profit, and we. Our structure is more of a think and do tank because we do both research but also convening. So um, our day-to-day work really focusing, focuses on advancing the global ethical governance of artificial intelligence. This is our mission. So to do that, we, we pursue both the, um, the path of research and also the path of convenings and creating the right, um, um, the right spaces for multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder um, profiles to come together and discuss the right approach to create this pathway of governance of artificial intelligence. So research, events, um, and um, we with the Future Society, I think what is also important to mention is that um, it was initially incubated at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government um, af- around five years ago, and it started um, as a student association thinking about how can we tackle the future problems uh, that emerging technologies, in particular AI, can uh, possess to society. And from there, it evolved to be a non non-for-profit and now a think tank. And we're really expanding, we're going global, we um, we are really expanding our pro- profile and approaches to governance, and I'll be very happy to discuss a little bit more as we go in our mm. conversation. But I hope this answers your question uh, mm-hmm. at large. Wow, so it's it's just five years old, the organization. Yeah, basically. I think it's two, two, six, five to six, six years old, mm. yeah. Wow. Well, the technology is developing so fast. I believe this is also why it's it's hard to keep up. But if you manage it, then then probably you grow really fast as a, as as an organization like yours. And uh, you probably have the the broadest overview on the governance side of AI and policies throughout the world. What stage of development is it at right now? in terms of how good the governments actually understand what, what AI is doing and implement uh, laws according to it? Okay, yeah, so I think um, this is a very good question. Uh, it is, um, it is, it's interesting to have this conversation now rather than having it five years ago mm-hmm. because you see that there is some progress made and you're thinking, okay, compared to five years ago, we, we really... You can see governments, some governments taking the lead on this. You can see international organizations really opening conversations, writing papers on AI principle or ethical guidelines and so on. Um, but I think the answer would be it's not enough. It's not enough to keep up with the speed of development that comes um, with, with AI. And um the, um, I think it is good to, to reward good practices and it's good to, to mention, you know, the, the, the governments that are taking the lead in, in this sense um, and create AI national strategies. And we have quite a few of those. But to say, look, there, there is a place where um, these AI national strategies or the principles that are being created 
uh, or any other instrument that fits into the governance of AI driven by the public sector is actually implemented uh, in the day-to-day. And here, a very important aspect is to say that the governance of AI doesn't only come from the, the public sector alone. The mm-hmm. private sector plays a huge, huge role in this because it's not only about companies developing AI, but companies also adopt AI principles. They create their own instruments of governance of this technology. So what we're really hoping to see in the future is a better merge between the two because mm-hmm. the governance overall comes from uh, the, yeah, this, this collaboration between public government, academia, and also uh, the companies from the private sector. Yeah, totally agree. But I have like one thing that interests me a lot is how do you find the balance between action in terms of technological developments and policies and this kind of um, contemplating on its uh, consequences? Mm-hmm. Well... In the virtual answer will be, if I had the answer, I'll be mm. extremely happy at this point because this is what we, we, what we were doing. So as I said, uh, the, the, mm. the governance of AI, the way we're seeing is how can we mitigate any risk that AI can possess while at the same time not hurting innovation. So I guess this is exactly mm. aligned with the questions that, the, the, your, with your own question. So to get there, um, there are, There are different approaches and we are trying to explore to them. And looking at the global governance, you have so many different uh, uh, variables that can play into this and different Mm. contexts because each AI national strategy is different than the other. But these principles of uh, optimization between innovation and ethics um, should be at the core of all of those, but it's not always as as easy. So. you hear a lot when when you go to those conferences on AI, um, it's very often you hear some terms, misuse, misuse, and missing data, the 3M uh, in AI. So um, they say, look, we are now, when we design this governance of AI, we are now in a position where we have to really think, okay, how can we misuse AI? Um, what are the dangers around that? Mm. How do we miss use AI, meaning we miss the chance to use mm. AI for um, solving some of these really big issues that we are afraid of, um, increasing inequalities and all uh, the other sustainable development um, goals associated risk. And uh, then we say, well, we also have another issue of not taking into account all the missing data, the data that is needed for AI to be developed, um, but we haven't even thought about how to mm. think what is data and how to structure that to, to use it in AI. So, um, yeah, finding, you know, that central optimal point of all of this will, uh, will, be, um, will be ideal. But I really believe that it's not a silver bullet, that there is not one model fits all. And mm. uh, I think trying to aim for that would be a mistake. We always have to sit and do that reflection that you mentioned, where you look at the context and you have your set of principles that you know everyone should agree on and and then you adapt that to your own context that's what i think at this moment and it will be interesting to see how this um evolves mm. yeah i guess this is when it comes in very helpful 
um, think tank, think and do tank like yours, where where you see the global picture in different contexts in which to apply different strategies. Mm-hmm. So from your broad view and uh, expertise, maybe just your opinion, uh, where do you see the biggest impact possi- positive impact possibility for for humanity on side of AI? Um, you have to what we observe is that in AI you have different tribes. This is how our uh, president, for instance, Nicholas, um, is always called them. So you have the people on ethics, the people on development, and the people on the security side of AI, right? So people are really concerned about the ethical development, people that are looking how to apply AI for development, and then the safety uh, aspect of AI. Of course, all of those um, overlap, but I do find myself um, uh, quite biased or quite um, attracted to the side of AI development. So I believe AI can um, can offer a, a really great opportunity for us to advance development in the world. So if we want to take, for instance, the sustainable development goals as the framework of development that we want to follow, uh, we know we only have 10 years uh, at our disposal to achieve them. And the problems that are covered by the sustainable development goal being no poverty, zero hunger, to um, environment, life beyond water, uh, economics, all of them are extremely complex. And we know that if we do not innovate and if we do not accelerate this process, we will not meet them. Mm. Um, so I believe AI uh, presents a great opportunity to, to do that. And I believe that um, the one of the best places where it does it is it helps us create this evidence base that we, we need uh, before acting on this Uh, sustainable development goals. So in terms of research, in terms of understanding the world um, before acting and finding solutions, AI can play that that role. And because it can exponentially accelerate some of the mechanisms in in this, it creates that, um, it um, compresses that timeline that we, we have. So uh, many examples already show how AI is applied on sustainable development goal, being um, efficient in cost savings, access to goods and services, economic growth. Uh, we have satellite imageries being um, applied for environmental hum- and humanitarian aspects, um, you know, closing the barriers in language translation, etc., etc. So, um, yeah, we can discuss more uh, use cases, but we already see a lot of benefits that I can bring but we have to be very careful about the challenges mm. that also comes with that. And talking about the challenges, where do you see the biggest dangers in terms of, of these technological trends? I think this feeds a bit into our conversation about not having the right governance, not finding mm. that place. Or you, you get so enthusiastic about... Um, developing AI because you want to improve your market share or your innovation place um, as papers, as an academic, or um, you want to, as a policy maker, you want to resolve poverty once and for all. And you know you have your solution and you do not stop to think, is this the right one? I can solve in the short term something, but what are the consequences in the long run? So not having the ethical um, aspect 
mm. embedded into the design or into the, uh, the design of the technology itself or the design of the policy, it is one of the biggest dangers. So we know very well how AI can, instead of doing what we initially want to do with it, for instance, inequality, right? If mm. we want to apply this inequality, but we do not look at our data set, and many great examples have shown how because our society is so biased already and mm. the data is representative of that, if we use the same biased data in now um, in those algorithms, what we're going to do is actually deepen the inequality gaps rather than um, trying to solve it. And, um, yeah, I think some of the very big issues are bias, lack of fairness, surveillance. We hear about, um, you know, cybersecurity, weaponization of AI, inequality, the loss of jobs, um, and many actually unforeseen risks that AI can, can possess. So um, we, we have a lot to work to ensure that um, we we try to mitigate as much as possible for those easy to see and maybe some of hard to predict risk before and during the application of AI for social good. Mm -hmm. How does it work, by the way, when you say you you predict the possible negative outcomes? Is it is it like a hackathon where people gather and uh, they think about? Ah, okay. Let's let's imagine I'm a dictator. How how will I use it, or or how does it work exactly? <laughs> no, I I mean I, I I wouldn't know if that will ever be the case for hackathons. I think <laughs> hackathons are really great tools to to use. And normally, in in the hacking traditional way, you do mainly the coding and you try to solve problems um, and do it really fast. But there are a lot of hack like legal hackathons mm -hmm. uh, where people also have this educational aspect of in the, the policy debate side and then the third pillar will be the coding so it's not only the coding but yeah mm -hmm. i'm not sure if any of those really stop and think about the ethical governance but i would love to to hear um, more about them but i think um in terms of cre uh, understanding the risk here is where the communication, the multidisciplinary and multi-stakeholder communication plays crucial role. So you have these um, leading experts in their own field coming with their own experience uh, that have been, you know, working with other technologies or even with AI technologies. Um, and then they, they understand the technology or they, they, they can understand the impact of technology on society. And they come together and discuss and they create this understanding of possible risk. And then they create the guiding, gu guiding documents and principles uh, around that. And um, it is, um, I think with that, you know, some of them you, you, you learn as you do and you, you tend to, fit, um, how to say, fail and learn. And mm. we have some really interesting examples where people have deployed AI to recognize faces. And then when they try to do that on, um, on black people, they, they, they mm. are identified them as monkeys. It's the most famous, uh, you know, case that people are saying. Yeah. So that's a good example of failing and doing, but with what consequences, at what price you mm. create that algorithm, um, you know, but others, so that's, in a way that could have even been seen already as a, mm. as a risk, but maybe it was not that obvious, but then after that, everybody knew 
you know, we need to increase our representative of our data if we want our algorithm to mm. work on all the different uh, facial uh, structures and the different um, parameters that uh, we want to take into account. Um, but other times with the unforeseen um, risk, uh, this is more of a, you know, um, qualitative and theoretical discussion and looking, learning from the past, trying to not do the same mistakes, but also create this framework for um, vision, uh, envisioning the future and where AI will play in different scenarios, like a game theory. And then mm-hmm. you, you, so this, you know, I say there are a lot better prepared people than me that are doing this. And you have really great institutions of research really focusing on this, on the long-term security risk that AI can possess the society. And yeah, I think their methodology will be really interesting to explore in mm. there. Yeah, I guess this is also where social sciences come in very handy, like philosophy. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of Yuval Noah Harari. I think he has like a brilliant mind just to compl- contemplate on uh, dystopian futures, <laughs> but it's needed. It's needed as well to see how Absolutely. how it might go wrong. And you see in, in the conferences um, of, a, of uh, AI, you always have uh, writers coming to, mm. to, to speak and you need that pre- in multi- multilateral thinking approach to envision all those scenarios because I believe that some of those the future could be extremely surprising even for us. And if we do not prepare for worse, it uh, will be very hard to, to justify our decisions in the present later on. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit intimidating, but it's very, um, it's very important work that those people yeah. are doing. Mm, definitely. So you're working now on one uh, very interesting project I've heard of, which is called AI Against Modern Slavery. Um, can you tell us more about what, well, what is the goal of the project and what do you mean by modern slavery actually? Yes. Yeah, I would love to. So this, this project is what drives me towards creating this, um, as regarding your first question, the multidisciplinary profile, mm-hmm. because I've been I was a student of international relations. I was in my third year of studies. And then in one course, uh, somebody comes and tells us um, there, are, there is slavery in the world. And we're like, what? <laughs> we, wait, we know so much because everything we study is how bad this world is, right? <laughs> when you study international relations, it's kind of yeah. your day-to-day uh, uh, reading. And then now you tell me there is slavery. We dealt with slavery in the past, right? And And then... You know, since then, it was like 2015 around that time. And I started researching and realizing there was not a lot of research happening at the moment, uh, at that moment. And um, in the since then, a lot more publications have um, appeared. And one aspect that still is not very clear is a common agreed upon definition of modern slavery. And there is not one there. Mm-hmm. Because... Before slavery was understood, uh, when uh, before its abolition, you knew exactly the type of uh, relationship between enslaved and the uh, slaveholder, and there were records about it. But now slavery becomes an underground crime, so it's mm. extremely hard 
to um, to quantify, especially. But to be able to quantify, you need a definition. So now for measurement pr- purposes, to understand how many people are enslaved in, in the world, there there is a leading publication by the ILO and Mindur Foundation where they say, well, uh, modern slavery is a situation where a person um, cannot leave the... Um, cannot leave the situation because they are being coerced or violence is being applied against them. So in, in simple terms, somebody is the property of another person. So mm-hmm. now, modern slavery takes many different forms. It can vary from human trafficking uh, to forced labor to child labor uh, to sexual exploitation, removal of organs and uh, uh, forced marriages, forced begging etc etc and all of those forms of modern slavery they have different vari- variation across the globe but what we know today uh, is that we have approximately 43 million people being enslaved in the world through following these approximations global slavery index mm-hmm. um, and one in four people enslaved is a child um, and you know as i said you you tend to look more to, uh, on um, on certain types of abuses depending where you are, right? So if you are in India or if you are in some communities in Romania, you look at forced marriages because in forced marriages, this is part of the, the culture. Uh, if you're in Thailand, you look at the forced labor of men in the fishing industry because these are things that now are popping up. But there's mm. everything, sexual exploitation, child abuse, forced marriage are happening everywhere in the world, from Australia to UK to Spain to US. Um, it's just very hard to quantify. Mm. However, more and more research, as I said, is start looking into it. The civic society, the NGOs are proving more and more that people are being enslaved. And then you have big events that, like the Rana Plaza when he fell in Bangladesh and all these uh, garment workers uh, were proven to be working in, under slavery conditions that then feed into the supply chain of big corporations and then touch our, our day-to-day life. So we are active members of this crime without us knowing it. So mm-hmm. what we are trying to do with this project um, is to to look what companies are saying they're doing to make sure that slavery doesn't exist in their supply chain. So we have a legislation that was passed in the UK requiring governments to, uh, requiring companies, sorry, to publish a report saying how they're dealing with slavery in their supply chain. And then Australia published a similar law and then others are doing, uh, doing that. But since 2015, when this uh, law was published, now we have a few thousand reports. And normally they're being analyzed manually. They have volunteers reading them and saying, this report mm. is empty or this report doesn't say anything or this one says they have whistleblowing policy and training on employees, etc., etc." Mm-hmm. And because they're, each year we have thousands and thousands of reports, what we're doing is trying to apply AI to make sure we automatize this benchmarking mm-hmm. and then we can spend more time with analysis and feed this back into policy and asking for a little bit more teeth on this legislation. Yeah, very, very interesting. And when you say, like, you know, the number 43 million of slaves mm-hmm. in two th- 2020, like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, we often hear child labor. Yeah, it's very sad, but, well, child labor. When you say slavery, it's like a totally different, I mean, it has a totally different meaning. And actually, when you say the definition, 
I couldn't agree more. It's like it's not freedom for these people. It's like population of Spain, basically, where where I'm living now, and in these conditions, it's uh, yeah. Absolutely, and you know there are different sensitivities. So culturally, we have different sensitivities to different worlds. So slavery seems to be a, 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 um, a you know it's a red line in international public law. It is something that all of us universally mm. agree that we don't want it, right? So. Of course, we don't like to hear it. But then when we look at these different types of abuse, it is still exactly the mm. same thing. People being kept by other people and they're not allowed to leave or otherwise they're going to, you know, and there are many other aspects. People are being disposable now. The value of a person enslaved nowadays is lower than ever before. It is so cheap to get rid of people because there are many factors playing into this, but, you know, it's, it, it is a crime. Um, if somebody, you know, in the fishing industry in Thailand, they take the man, they put them on the boat, they never seize the shore. And then if uh, they try to leave, uh, they just shoot them or they, you know, they feed them only rice until they're malnutrition and just throw them on the board if they die. And you, you're thinking, well, wait a second, are those people fishing the, you know, the streams or the fish that I'm eating? from this mm. supermarket and then some shows some correlation and um you know you you don't want you don't want that to happen you don't want anyone mm. to be enslaved and if you could control and help to that i think mm. um we should all have the enough information to make informed choices on our purchases so mm. we do not uh, we try to eliminate this crime yeah and if you if the algorithm does find I believe it's the natural language processing algorithm, probably. It is, yeah. If 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 it finds clues um, to like that, there is some evidence there is slavery in the supply chain of a particular company. What happens then? Like, is the company forced by the government to, I don't know, solve this issue, or how does it work then? Uh, no, that would not yeah. happen because. Um, it's very unfortunate and you know you try um, we try not to wear too much of an advocacy head um, um, hat on, on this because you know it's important to observe that companies that do more to encourage that behavior so if a company we are only analyzing what companies are telling us only what they publish mm. so we encourage companies look if you identify a case of slavery anywhere in your supply chains please tell us right that's like it's it's good to see and it's good to see how you remediate that situation how you help those people being uh, lifted from that situation of abuse and maybe you uh, you know you, you you create different contracts with that supplier and you make or create identify new suppliers anyway you help those people and we need to identify those best practices so then we can tell to the other companies that work in similar industries mm. say look those this company here founded that in this area in tired three of the supply somewhere in i don't know in pakistan or maybe next door i don't know mm -hmm. uh to their headquarters they founded this type of abuse you work in very similar supply chains. Go there and investigate. Maybe you are also linked. And this is a way for you as a company to prevent yourself from being exposed to that risk because no company, you know, 
really wants to be connected with slavery and that coming out public before they say, look, we know and we're acting on it and we're, you know, we're sorry, we don't want to participate in that. Mm. What we, what is happening nowadays is that companies are claiming they're against modern slavery. Every, you'll always see that, you know, we're very much against that. But then when the civic society comes and say, hey, you Instagram, you have a, a, a page where people can sell people and on your statement, the one that mm-hmm. we are analyzing, you're saying that you're against modern slavery. But then here, people can put a picture of a, of a home uh, cleaner um, and say for sale. And you have that on the internet, on your platform. Mm. How is that mm. happening? Um, so you see, um, the government, the law doesn't have this right deep to say you are going to on on the law they're only requested to publish a page with the signature from the board so it can be an empty page with the signature on their website and that's still okay by law so it's Mm. not a very strong legislation at this moment in the uk they recommend the companies to go more in depth and discuss other aspects but that's a recommendation but Mm. hopefully soon enough um if we can prove you know the that companies are saying something but maybe not enough um, what are the best companies on disclosure? Then we can give that evidence base to the government and to the legislation and say, look, we should uh, change our approach to that. Um, but mm. no, um, it is, we will not be able to identify if slavery happens in supply chain. We'll only identify if companies said or didn't say that. And then, you know, once we have this data structure, would be interesting to be merged with other data sources that look at incidents and then see just the example that I gave to you when the company says something, but the reality on the ground shows mm. something different. And that's the beauty of big data analysis maybe happening in the future. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I hope it will provide for more transparency. This is, well, this is important in many ways as greenwashing or even as if companies are not claiming to be sustainable, but I mean... Uh, Having slavery in your supply chain, as you said, no no company wants to 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 have it to admit it. So, yeah, I hope it, I hope it will be, would be obligatory someday, uh, at least in our in, in Western states, that uh, that this company do something about it. Yeah, well, yeah, we will be. You you will see since this um, so California published the first law, but then the first national law. Uh, of tr- transparency in supply chain was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the UK one, 2015. Then you have Australia. Now, Norway, Canada, uh, the EU, the France mm-hmm. published a really great similar law. So, you know, it, there is a deep a domino effect uh, on this. So more and more governments mm-hmm. are going to approach. But it's important, you know, as you have learned from the past, learn from the mistakes of the other governments and try to come with the right level of regulation uh, from the start. So then... Uh, will be easier for you and for the companies that have to comply as well, because it's really important to make this process fair. Mm, mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, now, now, like I see better, I, th- I guess, what kind of important role you play in this in this whole uh, situation and this whole development. I guess we're running out of time. Uh, before I let you go, would you like to share how how can people find you on the web? Oh. Well, well. Again, thank you so much for offering me the chance to to talk about those issues that 
um, I, that I'm working on every day. And again, those are just opinions. I'm still learning. I'm, I'm, I have lots to learn to be able to, um, you know, to advance in this domain. But um, I will always be extremely happy to have conversation and to learn from 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 people. So um, I am I am on the Future Society website, um, mm-hmm. and um, there you're gonna see some extremely interesting profiles from my colleagues as well. Everybody comes with very diverse and very um, interesting expertise. Um, so we are very friendly and very happy to to discuss with everyone, and we're always we. Personally, I really believe in coordination to advance. Um, it's so important to coordinate and make sure you're not duplicating work uh, so we can actually advance as quick as possible on these really pressing issues that society is facing so we can play our role. So always happy to communicate. Mm. Um, yeah. Great. That's, um, Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to, to have you here. So that pretty much wraps up our episode for today. How was it for you? Have you enjoyed? Please leave your feedback for us. This is the best way for us to grow and develop. I will leave the link to a questionnaire we've created, which is super short and super fun. If you do enjoy our episodes, then consider supporting us on Patreon so that we can continue the flow and create more of quality content for you. Thank you for listening and see you next time.